0: So, um, I don't know if all of you all were familiar with what we did the night of Purim when we gathered gifts for Tessa Tucker. Um, If you don't know, we gathered some stuff to send to Tessa Tucker, who is in Cincinnati, up at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And she is waiting for a heart transplant. And she's... Nine years old. And uh, Amanda posted pictures this past week on the Facebook site. If you have not seen those pictures, you really need to see those pictures Um, because it shows her opening this box of stuff that we sent her, and it's pretty cool. She's pretty happy to get this stuff. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and I want to say thank you all to uh, for that. I haven't heard from Brian Safehouse. I did talk to Steve Ofield, who works there, but we haven't talked about that specifically and what we donated there. But again, those are good things. They're beautiful things, wonderful things, and we get to share in the joy of distributing joy. But on the flip side of that, you think about Brian Safehouse, and you're talking about men who are or have been addicted to drugs and they're in a 12-month in-house program to help deliver them from drug addiction. Drug addiction is not a joyous thing. Drug addiction is not a happy thing. And when you think about a little nine-year-old girl sitting in a hospital waiting for a new heart, that's not a happy thing. It's sad. I can't imagine. I mean, we were at Cincinnati Children's with Lily when she was going through her stuff, and she was about, well, about nine, right? And let me tell you what, you want to be sad, go to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. You're like, you're bumming me out, Jason. Well, good, because today we're talking about sadness. And I know for some of you all that sounds kind of ominous for different reasons. Some of you deal with sadness on a daily basis. Some of you live with sadness in the form of depression, in the form of that black pitch feeling that follows you around, that cloud that hovers over you. Some of you maybe don't deal with sadness. I've told this story before, but I've got two very beautiful, godly parents who gave us a wonderful life growing up. But something that we didn't do in our home was sad. If you were going to be sad, don't be sad. And that worked fine until I was nine years old, oddly enough. And I sat in the movie theater and watched E.T. Yeah, yeah. And I point back to this a lot, especially when I'm talking in therapy with people. And I remember, you know, if you were going to be sad at the house, the word was, well, don't be sad. And that's because my parents didn't want us to be sad. Because sad's hard, right? Well, I'm sitting there watching E.T. and I don't want to ruin anything for anybody, but it's real sad. And here I am sitting beside my dad, who was not a harsh man. He would not have berated me. My dad would have just said, don't be sad. But I'm very sad. And I'm, I'm almost, and I'm overstating this a little, I felt like I was hemorrhaging inside. I was so sad. It's true. I'm, I'm, I'm... It felt awful because this sadness that was so palpable and so real was in me and I felt wrong for feeling sad. I felt like I was bad because I was sad. But what I was watching, what I was seeing was obviously sad. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I think we struggle, especially as Christians for whatever reason, with what it looks like to be sad. And let me just say up front, sad is not bad. Sad is not wrong. Sad is true. And Paul exhorts us in Philippians 4 to think upon those things that are true, right? Our brother went to heaven last night. And that's not sad because he's in heaven. And he's experiencing true communion. But it's sad for us, right? It's sad for Linda and Jody and their family. And I think we've got to learn a theology of sadness. Of what it means to be sad. And we're going to see it today. We're going to see it in Ezra. And I think we're going to see where sadness should lead us what sadness should look like, and why we should be sad sometimes. So this is not a feel-good sermon, but it's right. It's good. It's not bad. So with that being said, we're going to read the end of Ezra 8 to see where we were last week. That'll be our public reading, and then we'll work through Ezra chapter 9 today. So if you would stand as we engage the very words of the Holy God who has revealed Himself to us through these scriptures. We'll be reading Ezra 8 from 31 till the end of the chapter. The very words of God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabat the son of Jeshua and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Let me pray. God, as we approach your word, may we not forget to tremble. May we not forget that this is holy. Not me, not my words, God, but you and your words. And may we understand that your Holy Spirit communicates these truths to our hearts so that we might go out and live them out in a way that brings you glory. God, help us to know what it means to be sad for the glory of God. We need your help and we ask for it now, expecting it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So some of you guys may not have been with us on this complete journey. And Jordan asked me this morning, he said, I'm a little confused. He said, did I miss something? Did y'all skip some chapters? Because we, we were on Ezra 8. He said, nah, I, I don't remember. what." I... So let me reset the table for us again, okay? We started and we started in Ezra 1 and went through Ezra 6 where we didn't meet a guy named Ezra yet, okay? But it was about some exiled Jews who had been living in Persia and who went back to Jerusalem to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. And it said that those whose hearts God had stirred went to Jerusalem and they did rebuild the temple after some time, after some trial, after some hardship. And they established, reestablished temple worship in Jerusalem after having been exiled from that land For 70 years. Then we left Ezra 6. At the end of Ezra 6, we went into the book of Esther because time-wise, that's where the book of Esther fits between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. So we spent all the time that we did in Esther concluding with Purim, which was really cool, a really good memory. And then we came back to Ezra 7 after we had went through Esther. And Ezra 7 is where we picked up the narrative, which was many years later between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. And we saw this guy named Ezra. We met him finally, the guy who the book's named after. And it tells the story of him living in Babylonia, also as an exile. And he wants to go back to Jerusalem and the king says he can and he can take whoever he wants with him. And the king gives him money and stuff and says, if you need anything, let me know. We'll pay it out of the royal treasury. So last week in Ezra 8, we actually saw Ezra and his companions, upwards of 7,000 people, returned to Jerusalem. And we see here at the end here that they delivered the king's commissions. The king had sent a letter to tell the satraps and the governors, that's the people who were governing in the province beyond the river, which is where Jerusalem was. And it says they aided the people and the house of God. So here we have Ezra and his companions back in Jerusalem. Things are set up. And what did we learn about Ezra back in Ezra 7? We said that Ezra was a scribe and he was a man who was learned in the law of Moses and he had set his heart to study, to do, and to teach the law of God. So so this Ezra guy, he's devout, he's up front, and he's an important part of this story. And last week, him and his friends make it back. Now, we start into chapter 9 and we will, by the grace of God, finish chapter 9 today. And we'll go through it kind of a verse at a time until we get to the last 10 verses, I think. 10, 11 verses. Then we'll read them all together. So here's chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. So... As has been the case most of the time, this phrase, after these things, is a little deceiving. Okay, So it's not just like they showed up, hung out for three days, and then on the fourth day is after these things. That's not what's going on here. If we fast forward a little bit into chapter 10, which we won't have it up here. We'll see it next week. But we see after these things, people began to assemble. These things that we see in chapter 9, after these things, people began to assemble. And it gives a very specific date in chapter 10. It says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days, three days between what we're reading here in chapter 9 verse 1 and three days hence after that. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square. So if we look into chapter 10, three days later is the twentieth day of the ninth month. Now, we've got to do a little math here. We left these people at the end of chapter 8 in the fifth month. Okay, so nine minus five. Anybody? If I've got nine and I take away five, how many have I got? You guys are really good at math. You're right, it's four. So four months have passed between the end of chapter eight and the beginning of chapter nine. And just just so you know that, that four months have gone by. Now, what do you figure was going on in these four months? What do you think Ezra had been doing? For these past four months. We don't have specifics mentioned. we've just got after these things. but we know that Ezra was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, and he had set in his heart to study, to do and to teach the law of God in Jerusalem. So what do you think Ezra was doing in these four months? I'm supposing he was studying, doing and teaching the law of God in Jerusalem. okay? That's what we've got to go by. Um, I'm sure. That His four months consisted of studying, doing, and teaching the Word of God. And after four months of his ministry, after having taught God's people God's law, the officials, which means the community leaders, probably both political and religious, approached Ezra and they conveyed some bad news. They tell Ezra that the people, the priests, and the Levites, three very distinct factions there, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations." Now that needs a little clarification too, I think. What's it mean? It means a lot. And to get an idea, we have to go back in time before the people of God possessed the Promised Land the first time. When Moses was leading them through the desert, they left Egypt. This was a long, long time ago. Okay. You remember the Exodus story and the first Passover and all that. So then the Israelites, leave the Hebrews at that time, leave Egypt and they wander through the desert for 40 years, right? Right before they're getting ready to enter to the land in Deuteronomy, we're going to see what some of these abominations are that the people are practicing with the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Okay, Deuteronomy 12, 29-31, God was very specific in some things for His people as they went into the Promised Land. He said... When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So, God had told them, plain and simple, don't worship like the people worship whose land you are taking. He tells them to wipe them out. And don't let any memory of them remain and don't inquire about how they worshiped. Why would God say that? Because... He doesn't want them worshiping other gods. There's only one God and God demanded all of their worship. So don't worship their gods. Don't ask about how they worshipped. Makes sense, right? That's not all. Let me take another step back in Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 through 6. Listen, this is what God says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you. Oh, looky here. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them. Note that giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and He would destroy you quickly." But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So this is a little more specific, right? Here it's not just about not worshiping their gods, but also not making covenants with them, not intermarrying with them, breaking down their altars, dashing their pillars, chopping down their ashram, which were phallic worship poles, by the way. That's, we'll leave that there. And burning their carved images with fire. It wasn't just, don't do what they do but more like remove any vestige of the pagan culture and don't propagate their line by marrying them or giving your sons and daughters to intermarry with them. It's calling for radical action, not only to prevent false worship, but also destruction of all things having to do with false worship. So that's when the Hebrews were initially conquering the promised land, a long time before Ezra, okay? So, the question that I have for us this morning, especially pertaining to Esther, does what God said to the Hebrews going into the promised land for the first time, does this apply to these exiles coming back to this land from the land of their sojourn after they had been conquered? Is it still valid? And the answer is yes and no. Listen, God was not sending them back to Jerusalem to reconquer the land. This was not a military campaign that Ezra and his friends were on. But the strict prohibitions against any threat of religious intermingling are still in place. So he's not saying wipe all these people out, but he is saying clearly, don't intermingle with them religiously. Don't give your sons and daughters to intermarry with them. And we kind of get that. We understand that. But here, if you'll remember, it had become pretty cool pretty socially advantageous to be a Jew in the Persian Empire at this time. Remember that? A Jew named Esther who had reigned through a time when the second in command in the Persian Empire was a guy named Mordecai who happened to be her cousin adoptive father who was a Jew. And we saw that people recognized this in Esther's time and made radical changes in their lives to become Jewish in life and practice. And that's good, right? That's what we want. We want people coming to worship the one true God. Well, yes and no again. Yes, in that people wanted to know the God of the Jews. That's great. But no, in that if these Jews weren't zealous to protect their purity of worship, things were bound to get a bit mixed up. These outsiders would surely bring some justification of why they weren't exactly to the letter of the Jewish law. And it was this mindset that God was warning the Hebrews way back in Deuteronomy about. If you allow them to remain and you get comfortable with them in their ways, it will become a snare to you. Note that church in our culture today as well. Don't get comfortable with the culture. Don't get accepting of the culture's ways. Right is right, wrong is wrong, holy is holy, sin is sin. And if we fail to call it as such, we will intermingle with the culture. But these people weren't coming back to Jerusalem to run people out. So the problem of purity was an even greater problem. I think we can stay clean in a sterile environment, right? I can be Jewish when I'm around all Jews. But what if you put me in the middle of a mud hole? A little harder to stay clean there, right? So the people had not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And the leaders list the people groups that the Israelites had cozied up to, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. These are the same nations we saw mentioned in Deuteronomy with the addition of the Egyptians. So how did they do? Doesn't seem like they did very good because now they're falling into the same traps that their ancestors fell into when they went into the promised land the first time. With an Egyptian flavor added into it as well. So what have they been doing? Let's look at that. Verse 3. I think I went far too. I'm sorry. Verse 2. I'm wrong. That's right. I'm wrong. This is what the people had done. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself... With the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been for most. Now, it doesn't say that the people of God were doing specific things outside of intermarrying with foreigners. Now, is that so bad? Yeah, it is. It is bad. First of all, God had said specifically not to do that. Why? Because He said if they did this in Deuteronomy 7 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and He would destroy you quickly. Now did you catch that? You shall not intermarry with them, for they would turn away your sons and daughters from following me, God said, to serve other gods. And you know, I hear this a lot in our culture today. Well, he's not a believer, but I'm marrying evangelistically. It's a bad idea. Were these people doing that evangelistically? It doesn't matter because they weren't supposed to do it. Plain and simple. These Jewish people were not to marry Ammonite people. They were not to marry Perizzite people. And let me just say quickly, and we won't cover this this morning, this is not about racism. Okay? This is not about, oh, God made us different, so we should not marry people who are different than us. Anybody ever grew up hearing that? Well, if God made us different, maybe we shouldn't marry black people, or maybe we shouldn't marry Asian people, or maybe. That's foolishness. And that's not what this is about. This is about purity of worship to God. And God said, separate yourself from the uncleanness of the lands, not the color of their skin. just need to address that real quick. So it's not a matter of marrying evangelistically, marrying somebody to convert them. That will not work. But they'll worship like me. And God said, no, it will be the opposite. There is no influence in your life like that of your spouse if you're married. Two people become one, and they affect one another with all that they do. And God flatly told them that if you allow foreigners that much access into your life, you will worship false gods, period. And back here in Ezra, the people of God had jumped wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y. They had jumped wholly into the mud hole. And it says, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. It had happened, and it was happening, and it was directly opposed to God's will. And it was pervasive to the point that the officials and the chief men were in the lead in doing this. Those who should have been setting a different, better example were leading with their deeds, and their deeds were blasphemously wrong. So how does Ezra react to this? Well, let's just say he's not hard to read. Verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Ezra, we've got some bad news. The people are intermarrying and they're doing abominable things toward God. And I want you to get this picture in verse 3 clearly in your head. Ezra hears of the sin of the people of God and he falls apart. On the spot, in front of everyone, tearing his garments, pulling hair from his head and beard, and sitting there appalled. Which means literally to devastate, to cause horror, or to ravage. Ezra, the people are intermarrying with the peoples of the lands, and Ezra falls apart. I want to ask you something. Have you ever been sorry for a sin that you committed? Have you ever been so sorry you pulled your hair out? And that sounds funny, but it's not. So grieved. So negatively affected by the results, by your actions, that you just fall apart on the scene, sitting on the ground, tearing your clothes. We don't do that anymore. We don't tear our clothes but so tore up that you physically show your grief in dramatic and drastic ways. Ezra didn't try to justify or figure things out. He heard something horrific, and it was horrific, and he reacted as one who was overwhelmingly sad and distraught. I think we've become so numb to sin that this sounds ridiculous to us. Ezra was sad. Ezra was distraught. So what were the people's response? Were they like, come on, Ez, don't be a drama queen. Not so much. Verse four. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Now this is another picture that I want you to really get a hold of here. Ezra falls apart on the spot as they report to him what's going on with the sins of the people of God. And his companions, his co-workers, his friends and relatives, those who trembled at God's word, those who were directly affected by... Ezra's preaching and teaching gathered around Ezra while he sat there appalled it doesn't say that they tried to console him or convince him that he was right or wrong they just gathered around him showing fellowship and showing understanding they knew God's word they trembled at those words it says and they felt like Ezra and they gathered around him as he mourned and sat appalled. And so they would continue until the evening. And then, now we're going to read the meat of what we're going to look at today. is going to pray. And I'm going to read it all together. And then we'll go back and comment and learn from it. So, starting in verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to You, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken Your commandments, which You commanded by Your servants the prophets, saying... The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? So that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. Where do you start here? What do you do with this? I think we start in verse 5. And we note Ezra's posture. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. You're like, oh good, he's getting up. And fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Ezra got up from his seated morning. And I'm sure his friends are like, okay, let's, let's, let's gather ourselves. And he falls to his knees. And he lifts up his hands and he starts praying. Now again, I know I've said this a couple times already this morning, but I want you to get this picture in your head clearly. This highly revered man of God has already humbled himself before the eyes of man. But now he does so toward his God on his knees, lifting up empty hands to the one who knows the depths of the depravity that he lives in the midst of. When's the last time you fell on your knees and lifted your hands to God and cried out and said, Woe is me! It's been a long time for me. I've been sorry for my sin and that's not wrong or bad. I have felt desperate and shot an arrow prayer up to God in the moment, but to fall on my knees in despair over the sin of going on around me. When's the last time, church? Because that's exactly what Ezra is doing. He lifts his hands from his knees and what does he pray? It jumps out to me that Ezra, who had not partaken in these sins... We have no indication that Ezra intermarried with anybody. He was a man who was familiar with the law of God and had set his heart to study, do, and teach it. So do you think he had intermarried with anybody? No. And what's he say? Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He approaches God as his God and says he is ashamed and blushed to lift his face to his God. And again, why though? For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. But look at this wording. He's ashamed to approach God for our iniquities and our guilt. But he hasn't done it. He hasn't done these things. The people had not separated themselves and were intermarrying with the people of the land. And Ezra says, our iniquities, our guilt. And he says, they're higher than our heads and up to the heavens. And we know what's going on at that time, but Ezra doesn't just focus on that time. Verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. Ezra goes back to his ancestors and their sins. We saw last week the whole episode with the golden calf and how the Levites were separated to service unto God when they... Strapped their swords on their sides and went back and forth through the camp, killing their brothers and cousins and all those folks. And Ezra goes back to the sins of the fathers. And he says, From that time, we've been in great guilt. These Israelites, the whole lot of them were wholesale sinners. These people of God, chosen and favored by grace, by their Creator, were depraved. And Ezra knew it. And these recent sins were, unfortunately, not any different from those of the past. They are what they were. And that depresses Ezra. He would hope that they were more faithful than they were. He recounts their history, speaking of their fathers and their ancestors, and how their sins led to them being taken off by kings and armies, and their punishment was just. And what they had done and the punishment that had resulted had them where they were today in the midst of such a punishment as servants of the king of Persia. Yeah, they were free and they were in Jerusalem, but they weren't free. They were servants of the king of Persia. They weren't sovereign. But even in the midst of all this, Ezra recognizes that in this present time, in his day, God had granted them favor in letting them be in the Holy Land with a temple to worship God in with priests and blessings from the king. He says that in verses 8 and 9. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet. Our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So how should the people of God respond to God and His kindness in this time in the midst of their sins? They should respond thankfully and in obedience, right? Be careful, because I'm coming for you. How should we respond to the grace of God in the midst of our sins? Thankfully and in obedience, right? But that's not what happened. And Ezra continues to chronicle these issues, moving into their present disobedience. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we, again, corporate, have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant or any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. We are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Here Ezra chronicles what has been conveyed to him and continues to say we and our. And in verses 13 and 14, Ezra says that after God punished them less than they deserved for their sins in the past, have they not done the very same things that they were punished for in the past. And yes, they have. And shouldn't God just wipe them out and not leave them a remnant? Yes, He should! But He doesn't. And in verse 15, Ezra confesses that God is just and that the Israelites, all of them, are before the holy God in our guilt and says none can stand before God because of this. And it's true. It's tragically, sadly, accurately true. Now the question is, how does how do the people respond to this? Well, that's next time. Not next week. Gabe and Becky will be here next week. How will the people respond? We'll see in two weeks. But for now, we move on to application. I've got two separate sections of application this morning. The first thing I want to do is just look at some suggestions for prayer in this text. And that's going to be its own little entity and then we'll have three application points after that. But first, I just want to look, just point out a couple things here. This prayer of Ezra's in Ezra 9 is not a model prayer for everyday praying. Okay, It doesn't match up with the prayer Jesus told His disciples to pray that we call the Lord's Prayer. So I'm not suggesting that Ezra's prayer here should serve as a suggestion for beginning a regular prayer routine. I don't think we should fall on our knees and lift our hands every day to God and go, "Oh, is us! I'm so guilty. We're so guilty. We're so bad. No. But it is an exemplary prayer if we're looking at how to approach God with the matter of sins. Not just my sins. That's enough. But something that I noticed just overtly here, and we mentioned it in the message was that this is corporate in nature. This is not... Again, Ezra didn't do these things. And he's confessing our sins and our guilt. Not me. And he's not even pointing at them. He's not saying "Oh, their guilt. He's not saying, I didn't do it God, but they did and it's really bad. There is a corporate nature to sin, people. Your sin affects everybody in this building. That should make you sad. And I'm not trying to tweak your emotions this morning. I'm not trying to make you sad. But if I'm approaching God with the issue of sins committed, yeah, I I should start with my own. Ezra doesn't do that here because we don't really see anything bad that Ezra does. But he is so affected by the corporate nature of sin. And it's very possessive in nature to him. These are the sins, our sins that we have committed. And he doesn't make excuses. He didn't say, yeah, things have been hard, God, and you know, it's really, you know, the, the, the culture out there is really negative toward us. And they don't really like us and they're taking away our rights. He doesn't make excuses. He just says we have sinned and our guilt is heaped up to heaven because of our sins. Note something else in this prayer. He doesn't ask for anything. This is not a request prayer. It's a confession prayer. We have sinned. Our guilt is stacked up to heaven. You told us what to do and we did something different from the time of our fathers up to this day. Should we not have done what you asked us to do? Yes, we should. Should you not wipe us out? Yes, you should, but you haven't. He doesn't in any way accuse God of wrongdoing. He doesn't say, oh God, you made this too hard for us. And he makes no deals or bargains with God. If you get me out of this mess, God, we'll do better next time. That's not the way we deal with our sins. Our sins. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees a vision of the holiness of God, and He's high and exalted, and He's seated on the throne with angels, seraphim, swirling around Him crying, Holy, 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 holy. And how does Isaiah respond? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of heaven, and I am unclean. When we see the holiness of God, the excuses for my sin, the excuses for our sins fall away. There's no excuses for sin in the presence of God. So there's no bargaining. There's no requesting here. I am a sinner. We are sinners. Listen, church, I don't have to point far in our culture today to find sins to be sad about. Well, I'm not doing it. That's not the attitude that I see with Ezra here. This is a model for prayer that says, we are people of unclean lips. We are sinners, all of us. And we are sorry. And we are sad. You know, there comes a time in the life of individual believers and in the life of a corporate group of believers to be sad. And I don't know that we do that well. I mentioned that at the beginning of the message. James tells us this Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Seeing Ezra's reaction to sin and reading his prayer about that sin gives us some good action points in prayer. And then looking at James' words here, Point out to me something we need to, we need to do better, church. We need to be sad. Ezra showed public grief over the sins of the people by tearing his clothes and pulling out his hair and his beard and sat down appalled. <laughs> and then he bowed and lifted up his hands to God in prayer later. This is very public and deliberate sadness. Sadness. James says specifically to be wretched and mourn and weep. Stop laughing and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. This means that we should at least sometimes be sad. And from what we've seen in Ezra today, I see three things we should be sad about at times and we'll be done. Three application points. We should be sad for our friends. I'll be honest with you, I cheated a little on the second application point to make it rememberable. Okay. Rememberable? Did I say rememberable? It's okay to laugh. You don't have to be sad right now. I said rememberable and that's stupid. Okay. <laughs> We should be sad for our friends. Here's the second one that I cheated on. We should be sad for our sufferings. huh? Sufferings. And thirdly, we should be sad for our sins. Our friends, our sufferings, and our sins. I want you to remember that, okay? That's why I did that. First of all, we should be sad for our friends. Sometimes we just need to look at things that people are going through around us, and we need to be sad with them. Notice I did not say sad for them. It means that we don't try to fix their sad. We don't tell them, don't be sad. But we just feel it with them. The Bible is clear that we are to do what? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That doesn't mean to put on a sad face and act like you're crying. It means to feel sad with people who are sad. And this verse here in Romans 12 is just a few verses past 12.9. Anybody remember what 12.9 said? Let love be genuine. And we spent the rest of chapter 12 detailing a list of what it looks like for love to be genuine. And genuine love feels sad with people that are sad. We need to be sad for our friends. We need to be sad for the buttrums right now. And listen, it's great. It's, it's true. It's right to say Kim's in a better place. That's true. And we praise God for it. But I'm sad for Miss Linda. Sad for his kids. I'm sad for his brothers and sisters. I'm sad for his mom and dad. And we should be. That's right. It's good. I would say it's holy. To be sad with them. Too often we're uncomfortable when our friends are sad and we tell them don't be sad, or we try to fix their problems, or we just avoid them altogether. But we should be like those around Ezra. Remember they gathered around him while he sat appalled on the ground after hearing of the sins of the people? And there's the action point. There's the application. We need to gather around our sad friends and be sad with them. Job. If you're not familiar with Job, read it. Job just gets devastated by blatant attacks of Satan himself. Loses all of his kids many of his possessions, and he's grieving in sackcloth and ashes, and he's got boils all over his body as he's afflicted. And his friends end up not being very nice. They end up giving terrible advice and and saying that he had sinned, and that's what brought this on to him. But at the beginning, they were dead on when they first showed up. Job 2, 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, They came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And what did they do? And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him." For they saw that his suffering was very great. Now they'll blow that in just a little bit and they'll try to explain to him why he's so bad and why all this bad stuff happened to him. But for seven days and seven nights, they kept their mouth shut and they sat on the ground with him and were sad with him. That's a good place to start if we're going to be sad with our friends. Sometimes we just need to gather around, sit on the ground with our sad friends, weep with them, and speak no words because we can see that their suffering is very great. This is true compassion when we suffer with those who are sad. The word compassion means to suffer with. And that's what this looks like. We saw it in Ezra's friends. We saw it in Job's friends. And there are times when we should be sad for our friends and with them. And we as the people of God should be exemplary in our execution of this sadness. Just hurt with people. Put your arm around them and cry. It does wonders. Second point, sad for our friends, sad for our sufferings. Let's just be honest. This world is a mess, y'all. I mean, it is. If we can watch or listen to the news and not be sad, we're just not paying attention. We should be sad that there are 27 million plus slaves in the world today. We should be sad that there is rampant poverty and hunger in the world today. We should be sad that our culture is more and more decisively turning their backs on God. And I'm afraid that our default emotion in these cases is anger. And anger is needed too. But so is sadness. We should weep for those who are in dire straits. We can't help everyone, and that should make us sad. And it shouldn't immobilize us and us just stay sad. But just the compassion, I see it in Jesus' life. I'm going to mention three instances here. When he saw the crowds, this is Matthew 9 36 through 38. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, then he said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." He saw the crowds and he felt compassion for them. Luke nineteen forty-one through forty-four, and when he drew near and saw the city, town of Jerusalem, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I think it's easy to look at people who die, who pass away, a Stephen Hawking, and say, Aha, you know now, Right? Jesus said, if you would have only known the day of your visitation, in Jerusalem, you would have repented, but you didn't. And He wept! It's easy to shake our fist at bad people. They're suffering. And there are those who will suffer for eternity in hell because they didn't know the day of their visitation. And that moved Jesus to weep. And it should move us to weep as well. Suffering. Suffering. Temporal, physical suffering and eternal, hellish suffering should make us sad. And finally, third example. Y'all have heard of a man named Lazarus, right? John 11. Jesus coming to the grave of Lazarus with his sisters tore up all around him. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved. Here Jesus stands at the graveside of one of His most beloved friends and brothers. And what's He do? Chide people for crying? No. No. He weeps. And He weeps to the point that the Jews said, I can see how much this man loved this dead man because he's weeping. Now was Jesus angry? Yeah. Go back to John 11. We spent some time there years ago. There was some anger in his weeping too, but he wept. And his weeping showed how much he loved Lazarus. And I think that we should share in the man of sorrows, sorrows, a man who is well acquainted with grief is how Isaiah describes Jesus. We should share in his sufferings in this way and be sad for the bad, the sufferings that are all around us. Because ultimately these sufferings come back to what? Sin. And we should be sad for our sins. Let me finish quickly. We need to know the tragedy that sin is in our lives and in the lives of every human being on earth. No, we can't feel the full weight of that in our finite state, but we have to get a grip on the fact that sin should make us sad. We have to go all the way back to Eden to see this clearly for sure. We read the account of Adam and Eve and a snake and eating some fruit and we kind of yawn, too familiar, too desensitized to it all. But all the bad, all the hard, all the sorrow, all the suffering, all the death that we see today is a result of sin entering into the human race. And that's bad enough. But what we surely also cannot grasp is the grief that their sin, Adam and Eve's, and all sin since ours and everybody else's, have caused to the heart of a holy God. In the account of Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3, we see God's grief and Eve's oversimplified, misinformed explanation of the catastrophe that had just occurred. Genesis 3.13 Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. (laughs) Now I don't know what tone God had when He asked, what is this that you've done? But it sure seems like there's some grief in the question. And then Eve just passes blame to the serpent, seemingly making it no big deal. And so it has continued for 6,000 plus years on planet earth. We choose sin, God grieves, and we explain it away as no big deal. But remember what James said? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We need to be sad for our sins for God's sake and for our own. I do not believe that we will ever forsake a sin that we are not grieved over. Too often our sin is no big deal or it's somebody else's fault or the culture made me do it or the devil made me do it or just something God will forgive me for anyway. And in cases like that, we will never move past that sin. We will remain ensnared by it But if we will mourn and weep over that sin or those sins, then we can start to find freedom from them. And listen, freedom from sin is the goal. Not pacifying it, not excusing it, not getting used to it. Ezra was so sad about other people's sins that he wept and mourned and pulled out his hair and his beard. Have you ever been that sad about any sin in your whole life? Maybe we should be. Maybe then sin would be the real threat to us that it really is. Now I want to go back to something I said at the beginning as we finish. I know I'm a little long this morning. A little longer than normal. Let me say it that way. I'm acutely aware that there are some who are sad too much. There are those who battle depression. And to stand here and tell some of you to be sad... Is like telling a fish to be wet. But just so we're clear, I can honestly say that I completely understand that feeling. Been there. Done that. See it every day in the counseling office. This message is not a way to show that you're not sad enough. Don't try harder to be sad and don't try to stay sad. What I'm talking about in this message is what the Scripture calls a godly grief. Let me explain that. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to correct some faulty patterns in the Corinthian church. Remember he said, put one guy out to the point of death because he's not listening, he's not repenting. He took some stern stances and pointed out some hard truths to them. And then in 2 Corinthians, he addresses his doing so, and this is what he says. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says that he was glad that they grieved to a point of repentance. And that is exactly what we're talking about this morning. Godly grief, sorrow over sin, and sorrow for the plights of those harassed by it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. May we be those who grieve our sins and the sins and troubles of others to the point of repentance and hope. And that's the point of this grief. That's how we know that we have moved through this sadness. It produces repentance. And we are to move through sadness. We're not supposed to be sad all the time. And we know that we've moved through it when we have repented and changed our minds. Not just about our sins, but the sins of the world around us. And we'll see what that looks like in Ezra 10. So we won't elaborate on it here. And it's 10 after 12, so... But suffice it to say, we don't get sad to be sad and we don't stay sad. We move through it to repentance and on to better things, onto holiness, onto joy that comes from repentance and holiness. So it's not sadness for sadness sake and it's not spiritual depression. It's genuine grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. We are those who grieve toward life. We have joined the long defeat. That's what Tolkien called it. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. May we be those who grieve with hope for our sins, for our friends, and for our sufferings. Let's pray. God, sometimes my words aren't good enough. My God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And you, God, in your grace, have chosen to freely lavish not only forgiveness, but love upon me, upon us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us of our sins individually, of our corporate sins, of the sins of our fathers and of our land. And Holy Spirit, we ask that that conviction would bring grief.